of Mark, uh, following the servant Savior. Mark is the New Testament historian um, who has the closest witness, uh, witnessing of, actual, uh, of Jesus' actual life. Um, and last time we were in Mark, we were in the last part of Mark, chapter 4, verses 34, 35 through 41. Jesus and his disciples, uh, Jesus had been out speaking in the boat. Um, he's tired, he's exhausted. Um, he gets in the boat and goes to the other side. It had been a busy day for Jesus as they're going. Verse 36 uh, says that the disciples took Jesus along with them in the boat to the other side of the lake. And as they're traveling to the other side of the lake, we know what happens is that there's this violent storm comes up. And the disciples are in this storm and looking at Jesus, and Jesus is in the stern, verse 36, 38 says, Jesus himself was in the stern, stern and asleep on the cushion. How many of you are heavy sleepers and can sleep through a storm? Just a few of you. Some of you are more like Jesus in this area than others. <laughs> Jesus slept in the midst of this storm. And the disciples, of course, were thinking, does he not know what's going on? Does he not care about us? And so we see in the verses that follow that there's this desperate cry of the disciples to save us, to help us. In one accord, all three of the accounts of this story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all give this impression, this language of a desperate cry for Jesus to wake up and to save him. And so Jesus has this amazing miracle that happens, this incredible miracle. He says to the winds and to the waves and to the sea, hush, be still. As Steve mentioned in his message, it's almost as if Jesus said, uh, put a muzzle on it. And the sea and the storm was calm. But calming the storm may have been easier than what he had to do next, and that was calm the disciples. And so the disciples, he turns to them in a gentle rebuke and says, Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Remember, they were fearful. And Steve mentioned in his message this dichotomy, this balance, this, this struggle between faith and fear. And I've realized that in my own life, when I have a lack of faith, and there's an increase of fear, and when there's an increase of faith, there's a decrease of fear. And so we see this dichotomy, and then there's the conclusion in this passage. After, the storm, after Jesus woke up and the storm was calm, and even the disciples were calm, he, they say this in verse 41, they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him what a great question who is this man jesus the disciples begin to realize that jesus is greater by far than who they had imagined him to be that even the winds and the waves obey now the transition this morning is that we're going to continue on in this story because jesus and the disciples they get to the other side but the title of the message this morning is, What Great Things He Has Done. Looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. But before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this passage that we're getting ready to read and open up. And we pray that by your Spirit that you would reveal to us all the wisdom and truth, all the understanding all the application that we need to hear this morning. So God, with that in mind, I pray that you would help us from being distracted or pulled away 
or being attentive. God, I, help, I pray that you would help us uh, have a deep longing to hear from you. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. We're so thankful that you give us a time and a place to come together as a collective body to worship and receive from you. Would you take a moment and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear from the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been said that the fifth chapter of Mark has been described describes Jesus as the hope for the hopeless. Three different incidences in Mark chapter 5 happens. It describes this, uh, what we'll look at this morning, this demoniac, this man with the unclean spirit who was hopelessly wild, a woman who was hopelessly ill, and a father who was hopelessly grieving. And each instance, we see Jesus in his majesty and his power also see him compassionate and meet the needs and triumph over the hopelessness in all three areas. One commentator said this, What is especially important is the fact that in the entire chapter, not only the power, but also the pity or the compassion of Christ is revealed. Jesus' compassionate heart is revealed in each of the stories, and we'll look at them in the next couple of weeks. But three things I want to look at this morning in this passage, in Mark 5, 1 through 20, is this. The first thing is that to see what it looks like to have a life without Jesus, and then to see a life changed by Jesus and a life pursuing and proclaiming Jesus. Now, I have read this story since I was a kid, and I've read it a number of times this week, and I am just simply fascinated by it. It's so interesting to me. And I want you to get in the scene. Remember, I try to ask you to get there in the boat, get there with Jesus and the disciples. In verse 35 of chapter 4, it says that when they left, that evening had come, meaning that it was probably getting dark. And as they're pushed off and as they're getting ready to come ashore, it's dark. So it's probably a little scary, probably a little sketchy, um, maybe a little creepy as Jesus gets to the other side with his disciples. And there's lots of unknowns about the story, but there's some things we do know. And the first thing is this, we know what a life without Jesus looks like. Mark 5, verses 1 through 8, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at there. It says this, They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. That is a fascinating scene. Now the disciples come ashore at a place called Gerasenes. 
Now, what we know about the Gerasenes and the location of where it is and the type of business that they were engaged in, it is most likely that this is a Gentile area. The area, uh, the region is on the south or southeastern uh, seashore of the Sea of Galilee. It was also adjacent to an area known to or or kind of referred to as Decapolis, which means there's ten cities or ten villages that come together to make the region. Now, this is the first time in Mark's gospel, the first glimpse of ministry specifically to a Gentile. And Mark uses this language as the man that they uh, encounter as a man who had an unclean spirit or a man who had demon either possession or obsession, uh, oppression. So clearly the man's uh, encounters with this demon or this unclean spirit had manifested himself, manifested itself in the physical way. We're told that the townspeople had ran into this man before, and they tried to bind him with chains and handcuffs and shackles, but he busted them through. He broke the shackles into pieces. So it's obviously uh, evident that he is incredibly strong. We're not sure what he's wearing in this verses, but we hear when he's restored that he put clothes on, so he may not have very much clothes on. Now get this picture. The disciples, it's dark, it's creepy, it's probably a little scary, and they push up on the shore, and here comes this man running towards Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'll probably stay on the boat. His body cut with marks where he had gashed himself with sharp stones. And not only that, he screams all the time because he's tormented. Listen to what one commentator said. Every night and every day he prowls the hills around around the graveyard, howling and screeching in a crazed torment of a man whose personal demons will not let him rest. And had you the courage to get close enough to talk with him, you'd have heard him shout at you and perhaps heard the demonic echoes of several different voices in unison. It's a crazy scene. It's an intimidating scene. Not only would you not want to meet him in the dark, you don't want to meet him in broad daylight. He's dangerous and frightening. But more importantly, he's he's tormented. He's unhappy. He's unstable. He's wishing to die. Now, why am I saying all that? Because in his current state... He is the end result or the picture of what Satan desires for you and for me. And we don't think in those terms very often. But this man is the picture of the end result that Satan has for you and for me. John 10.10, the first part, says, Satan, the evil one, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So let me just start off by stating the obvious. Satan has no good plans for you. Do you believe that? Do you think about that? We have to remember what the Bible tells us and what Paul taught to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, I remember growing up as a kid that I memorized that verse, and I remember the full armor of God. 
It was also that time that I, somebody gave me this book called This Present Darkness. Now, I don't know if you've read this. It's a fiction book. But what it did for me was it opened my eyes to think about the reality of the demonic or spiritual world, that it is real. In the book, if you've read it, you know that Frank Peretti talks about and characterizes things of demons, people being on people's shoulders or hanging around at this crowd. And so I would get up in the morning and go to school, and I'd be looking. There's a demon on that guy's shoulder. Definitely a demon on that teacher's shoulder. But what it did was, it, although it's in a fiction book, it opened my eyes to the reality of a spiritual world. Ephesians 6.12, the Apostle Paul introduces believers in Ephesus to this reality in the Christian life. That Paul stresses that our battle, our struggles, are not physical but spiritual. Christian warfare consists then of a spiritual strategy fought with supernatural weapons against an unseen enemy. Beneath the surface, an invisible battle, spiritual battle, is raging. Raging war for our souls. One author wrote this, We fight this war not with tangible weapons like guns and ammunition, nor with bodily defenses like kicks and punches or even words, but by daily putting on the whole armor of God, always praying, standing firm in the word of God, and staying alert. Paul named these opponents as the devil and his schemes, the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Peter also warned us of this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Then he says this. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. We don't fight against flesh and blood. That means our enemies are not human, but demonic in nature. Listen to how the Bible describes Satan or the devil. John 12, 31, the prince of this world. Ephesians 2, 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God, little g, of this age. Revelation 12, 10, the accuser of believers. That is our true enemy. Paul says in our fight with this enemy, we must be aware of his traits and his tactics. Do you know them? Here's three that the scripture talks about. Number one is that his tactic, his scheme, they're powerful. They have authority to rule in the world, but not over the world. Secondly, they are evil. They have no good intentions. Their, their desire is to wreak havoc and destruction. And third, they are shrewd and they are subtle. They know how to scheme and they know how to strategize. They're so skilled, Scripture calls them angels of light as disguised. Or... Matthew 7, 15, that they can become wolves in sheep's clothing. So how can we, in our human 
weakness, expect to stand against something that is powerful and evil and shrewd and subtle? And the simple answer is we can't. Not in our own brute strength. Not by the, the, the willpower we try to muster up in the morning. Well, today, it doesn't work. Our struggle against the devil and his schemes, Paul says, six, Ephesians 6 to 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Only God can strengthen, defend, and deliver us from the power, wickedness, and the craftiness of the devil. Our enemy is strong, but God is stronger. You remember Paul's word of encouragement to Timothy? It's a powerful word. He tells Timothy, but the Lord stood with me. 2 Timothy 4, 17 and 18. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God makes available to us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So we don't fight these battles. We let God fight the battles for us. I was reminded of that story that many of us know and we grew up with called the story of David and Goliath. And when we were in Israel, we went to the Valley of Elah where we saw the hill of Goliath and the hill of David. And I was reminded of this story. Do you remember what Goliath said to David as he taunted him? 1 Samuel, 7, 4, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 43 and 44. Goliath says to, to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come here. And I'll give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. But David, even recognizing as a young boy that this battle was not about a human fight, he trusted in the strength of the Lord and his mighty power because he answered him and said this, You come at me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel in whom you have defied, for the battle is the Lord's. Now, while we were there, I, I went to the stream where David went and got five smooth stones as well. And this is a reminder to me. The battle does not belong in these rocks. The battle belongs to the Lord. Now, as we look at this man's life in Mark chapter 5, I hope to draw some parallels that we can identify with this man, not necessarily the way he looks, but maybe the way he's thinking and the way he feels and the way he's reasoning, and maybe even some of the difficulty challenges that he is facing. How a life without Jesus is characterized. The first thing we see is that he lived among the tombs in verse 3. Satan loves to have you and I hang out with those who are dead. I don't mean physically dead. But he loves us to hang out with those who are spiritually dead. Or going to lead us to people and places that do not bring life. He wants them to influence us. He wants them to drag us down. But we know that it's subtle. Satan tricks you and I into believing that life can be found and experienced among the dead, among things other than Jesus. 
Do you remember the question that, that the angel asked Mary at the resurrection tomb? He's not here. He's alive. Why do you look for the living among the dead? In other words, why do you seek to fulfill your life with anything other than Jesus? Because it's spiritually empty and dead. There's a second characteristic. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, verse 5. In other words, there was this ongoing desire to have release and peace. And he had tried all these other things, and it wasn't working. Nothing worked. All else had failed him. Verse 5 says he abused himself. He was tortured with demons and wanting to destroy himself. It's really a depressing scene when you think about it. This poor man. Tortured and then torturing himself. He doesn't feel like he has any worth, any purpose. uh, No sense of dignity. Satan has lied to this man about his image and how he's been created in the image of God. And he's believed it. And we all have areas where Satan has lied to us and we have believed it. And we've destroyed our understanding of truth. Mark graphically describes this man in this scene of total desolation and loss of the divine image in the man. Now I want to make a quick point before I move on. Is that I am convinced that this man did not wake up this way. I, I believe it was consistent with scripture in that he was tempted. Suddenly pulled away and deceived. And it began a downward spiral. We don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a drug addict. Today, I am going to go to prison. Today, I'm going to be an adulterer. Today, I'm going to do this and that. We don't wake up and proclaim those things. But it happens gradually and subtly because that's the way Satan works. There's a familiar phrase. Sin takes you farther than you want to go keeps you you, longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you're willing to pay. So what's my point? My point is this. It's never okay to flirt with Satan. Be alert. Pay attention. He has no good plans for you. So we have to run to Jesus. Now let me just say a side note here. For all you middle schooler and high school people, maybe first or second year of college people, I know that your parents ask you a ton of questions. Mine asked me a lot of questions, and now I ask my kids a lot of questions. Questions like, who are you going with? What time will you be home? Why are you hanging out with this person? Why are you hanging out with that person? Are you really thinking about dating him or her? What is that music you listen to? What is that on your computer? Who is that that just texted you? Here's the reason why they love you. They want to protect you. 
They want what's best for you. They know that to flirt with the subtle temptations of Satan can lead you and will take you where you do not want to be. And they most likely know because they've experienced it themselves. They may be lacking in understanding of how to download a new app, to turn on and off their phone. They will always forget their passwords. They don't even understand what an Apple ID is. But they do have experience. So listen to them. They want to protect you from the subtle schemes of the evil one that will take you further than you really want to go. Remember what James says? James 1.14, Each person is tempted in their own way when they're enticed and lured away by what? Their own evil desires. And then what happens? Then after that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. This is what his warning is in verse 16. Don't be deceived. My dear brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. Being deceived starts small. In your relationships, in your finances, in your attitude, in your work, in your school, the content we allow our eyes and ears to see on our computers and on our phone, it starts so small. But this man in Mark chapter 5 is the picture of, of sin full grown. These first few verses of chapter 5 speak to the picture of Satan's purpose for each one of us. A life without Jesus, the torment of this man, but it also shows the unaltered compassion of Jesus. Notice Jesus did not back away. He was not intimidated one bit. Verses 8 through 17. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the uh, a man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he asked him, My name, he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out into the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby in the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had their legion, and they became frightened." Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened and to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. Remember Satan's purpose, John 10.10, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But the last part of that verse, John 10.10b, But I, Jesus, have come that you may have life to the fullest. Jesus and this demon-possessed man belonged in opposite realms. They have opposite purposes. They seek opposite outcomes for people. One loves and the other hates. One restores, one tears apart. 
One forgives, the other accuses. One brings hope, the other brings despair. Remember Genesis chapter 3, it says, Let us make man in our own image, meaning that Jesus was there in our creation and knows the image that we bear. And Satan tries to destroy our image that we are in the image of God. And Jesus came to restore it. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus says that you and I are worthy of it. Not because of us, but because of him. He says you have worth and value because you're made in the image of God. And when you believe a lie that destroys the image of God, I want to help restore it. That's my purpose in coming. It's the Easter story. Jesus would rather die than live without you. Jesus says, I will cross the sea for no other reason than to rescue you. Verse 6, it says that seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed before him and said to him, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? The answer to that is that they don't have business together. This man shows an act of respect, not an act of worship. He respects Jesus because he recognizes Jesus as the one who is superior to him. Jesus' presence and authority provoke the response of this man because death and life do not go together. Notice that the demon knew exactly who Jesus was. And just a few verses earlier, the disciples are going, Who is this guy that's with us? The demons are very clear on who Jesus is. James 2.19, the demons believe in God and they shudder. They know their place. But mere facts about Christianity, mere facts about Christian doctrine does not save us. As we see with these demons, there is a submission to the person and work of Jesus that we place our faith, we surrender our lives to Jesus and to his work on the cross. The demons believe in the facts. They believe there will be a day that they are going to be judged. They do believe that there is a day that they are going to be sent to eternal torment, that they will be destroyed and be defeated. They use the words, the Most High God, on purpose because in a Gentile culture, It was a word that was used in the Old Testament that signified that you're the most high God. You're the God above all the other gods, little g. They knew who Jesus was. And Jesus desires more than just an acceptance of the fact of who he is. Jesus wasn't sent by God for us for only to be amazed from a distance with facts, but to experience ourselves the change that he brings. In verse 9, I think it's an interesting question. You see Jesus ask this question. What is your name? Isn't that interesting? What is your name? And the demon slash demon says, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
Now, this is most likely figurative uh, language in the sense that we are big, we are powerful. There's a lot of us. This idea of legion was, uh, referred to armies of 2,000 to 4,000 people, signifying that we are big and we can destroy whatever we want to destroy. And Jesus was making a point. Not big enough. Jesus wishes to name and reveal to the man the seriousness the depth, the power that has him possessed. And he desires to tear him loose, to free him from what's dominated him for so long. And here's, here's a point that I think is really important. Jesus knows the name of every one of my demons as well. Not demons in the sense of being uh, possessed, but demons in the sense of anything that pulls me away to the person and freedom of Jesus. He knows what entices me. He knows what lures me. He wants me to know it too. So I can be set free of it. Verse 12 and 13 are incredible verses. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, the, the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. What an incredible scene. Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking? Who in the world are we with? Notice verse 13. I don't think it's there by accident. He says, Jesus gave them permission. In other words, who's in control of this whole deal? Jesus. Now, many have asked me this question. Why would Jesus destroy those poor pigs? <laughs> and my deep doctrinal theological answer is this. I don't know. There are some reasons and some conjectures, but I believe one reason is this, and that is to show people and us, the people then and us now, what the true intent of demons and Satan is, and that is to kill and to destroy. The death of the pigs demonstrates the ultimate aim of the demons and of Satan and of sin. Because if the demons were sent into the pigs, they didn't have to run off. But Jesus is showing them that what happened to the pigs would have eventually happened to the man. So Jesus gives us the look into the compassion of this man that I don't want you to die in this state. Christ knew the state of our sin and he came to the other side to rescue you and me just like he did this man. Romans 6, 20-23, Paul writes this, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things that you are ashamed of now? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus had the power, he had the desire, he had the compassion and the capability, the competence to restore this man's life. And he has the same thing for us today. 
There's no medicine, no treatment, no man-made device or advice that can reach deep into the heart and change a life but Jesus. Now, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but there is something omitting in this story and that you don't hear a peep out of the disciples. It doesn't record any words of the disciples in this whole story. They've seen this demonic man. They've seen, they've seen the restore, restoration. They've seen these pigs go off the den. And you don't hear anything from them. They were probably hiding in the boat. Probably hiding behind Jesus. Their jaws dropped in amazement. It's probably the strongest and worst visual display of Satan they had seen. And yet Jesus they saw was stronger. And let me just say this. You may be here this morning feeling like you're at the worst place in your life. I don't know where you are. I don't know what's gripped you. I don't know if there's areas in your mind that you're thinking are hopeless. If there's this condition of my heart that just feels empty and tormented. Maybe there's places where sin has taken you further than you wanted to go. And now you're in a place where you are really under it. And there's pain, and there's hurt, and there's a longing, a crying out to be free. Jesus is stronger. He's bigger. He can heal it. Notice Jesus never backs away in this story. Not then and not now. I want to close with this, a life pursuing and proclaiming Jesus. There's two responses to this miracle. Verse 17 says that they began to implore him to leave the region. They were fearful, they were prideful, they were mad about their pigs. And they said, Jesus, get out of here. We don't know who came from the town. We don't know if it was the police, the religious leaders. We don't know if it was friends, family, business people. But what we do recognize pretty quickly is that they cared about themselves. They seemed to appear to have more concern about the dead pigs than they were about receiving healing for themselves. Love does not seek its own, but hurt people become more and more self-seeking and self-sufficient. Some of you have heard this phrase that hurt people hurt people. And that loved people love people. Verse 15 says that they were afraid. They were hurt. And so they wanted Jesus to go away. Fear and pride pushed Jesus away. They had just seen this miraculous thing happen in front of them, and it scared them. So they pushed Jesus away. Fear and pride kept them from welcoming Jesus. And while we may have fear, we must face Christ. Who else can make the changes we need to make in our lives? There's a second response, verse 18 and 19. As he was getting in the boat, Jesus, the man who had been demon-possessed, was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he, Jesus, did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Here's what I find very interesting. It's interesting that the man who was changed by Jesus forever wants to go with Jesus. But the people who were unchanged want Jesus to go. 
This man wanted to go with Jesus. Of course he did. His life had been radically changed. He had been restored. He had been set free. He had been given new life, a new purpose. He had been accepted. He had a story to tell. And he wanted to be with Jesus. But Jesus says, I have something else for you. I want you to go home and tell everybody about what I did for you. And here's what's really interesting. We know that he did that because in Mark chapter 7, we'll look at it in a few months, we'll encounter people from this same area who come out and want to be healed by Jesus. How did they know the power of Jesus? Because this Gentile missionary who was reformed by Jesus went and told them. He did it because he was very appreciative. His life was marked by gratitude for the work Jesus did in his life. It's been said that he was so glad, so thrilled, so different because of Christ that anything Jesus wanted him to do, he did so joyfully, enthusiastically, and diligently. Does that describe me? Does that describe you? Look what Jesus tells him to do. Go home and tell your people and report to them the great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And I think that's the instructions from Jesus for us this morning. To tell what great things the Lord has done for me. And let me just say, I'm not talking about another great book you've read, another great sermon you heard on a podcast, or a new song on the radio, or even a new book that's helped. I'm not talking about that. Those things are great. I'm talking about the things that Jesus has done for you personally. When is the last time you shared with someone what Jesus has done for you? Think about that. What has Jesus done for me? This man had a story to tell. And so do you. Two responses. Ask Jesus to go away because of fear and pride. Or receive his healing and tell of his great works with humility and thanksgiving. So three questions I want to leave us with, and I'll close. What area of your life has Satan, the evil one, or your demons got you bound up and is destroying you, tormenting you? Psalm 139, David says this, Search me, O God. Know my anxious thought. See if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me to the life everlasting. The truth of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness to set us free. Second question, do you believe Jesus can and will free you from those areas that Satan has stolen, killed, and destroyed? And will you receive Jesus' invitation to life abundantly? Third question, Jesus told this man, Uh, told the man in the story to go and tell what great things the Lord has done. Are you willing to do the same? This morning, I want to ask you this question. If you're not willing, ask yourself why. What hinders you from telling others about what Jesus has done in your life? Go tell what great things the Lord has done. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for so many applications. God, I pray this morning 
that you would find us ready to receive from you, that you would, as David said, search us and know us, that you would see and point out any offensive way in me and lead me to the life everlasting. God, I pray for those areas in my life and my friend's life who are here this morning that Satan has tried to steal, kill, and destroy. God, we claim the second part of that verse, but you have come to give us life, to make us free and to make us whole. The battle belongs to you, and we surrender our lives to you. Help us, we pray, to tell others of the work that you've done in our lives. And we'll trust you with the results of that in Jesus' name. Amen.